Lucy Dritt said yay. Wow. And she moved here from Virginia. So, um, Do you have any questions before we start today? Oh, that got it silent. <laughs> it's the first time to ask questions. I love this. The first person to raise her hand is Diane Jelkin. I love that. Diane. Yeah, what's the irony that they're sending out this law to the whole kit and caboodle of the empire? I will, I will touch on that. I will, I will definitely answer that. Yes, Gretchen. Right, and I mean, you've touched on both things, that what would life have been like uh, for the average Persian, Persian citizen, on the one hand, they would have been doing all the serving for the six months, but they did get their seven-day party. So, uh, you know, there, it, it would have depended upon a great deal on the king and the court. And the picture we're getting of Xerxes is, is not a good one. I mean, he's, and we'll talk more about that today. He was very impetuous. He was very easily manipulative. He was angry. He was, I mean, just so to live under a tyrant who just goes, yeah, pass that law and it can't be revoked would have a huge impact on everyone living under his authority. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. Any other questions? Let's pray. Father God, thank you uh, for this day, wind and, and cold and all. We know that you are here, you are present in this place. And so I pray that by your spirit, you would speak to us through your word this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, well, I do want to start with just a little bit of historical background. I know I gave you some um, last week, and some of this will be repeated from last week. But I think it's good before we talk about chapter 1 to know uh, exactly what the background is. This will be the Reader's Digest version of that historical, okay, this hair right here is on the wrong side. Do you, that, does that just drive you nuts? And then it just, this one hair, I'll hang down in front of my face. That is wonderful. I'd never remember that I'm online before I say such things. Okay. <clears throat> I gotta get better at that. Um, so remember we talked about the two different um, parts of Israel that Israel split after Solomon's reign into a northern kingdom Israel, which fell first, and a southern kingdom Judah, which fell second to the Babylonians, and the Babylonians took, your hair is so cute, Dawn. I didn't even know it was you when you were like, look, it doesn't she look, she always looks cute. She had her birthday this week, so everybody say happy birthday, Dawn. Happy birthday, Dawn. And she loves me for that. So anyway, so anyway, uh, so the, the, the Judah, the kingdom of Judah fell second to the Babylonians and they were taken exile. So here we have uh, the, the Jews of Judah in exile in Babylon. Now, fast forward 50 years. And, and, well, let me just say that, that they were a, a, a displaced people, obviously, but they were also a religiously displaced people. They had no temple, they had no priests, they had no sacrifices. In short, they had no way of practicing their religion in the way God had prescribed, in the way God had told them to practice it while living in exile. 
in, in the Babylonian Empire. So you go forward 50 years and Babylon is overthrown by Cyrus II, also known as Cyrus the Great of Persia. So now they come under the Persian Empire rather than the Babylonian Empire. And, and he overthrew Babylon without so much as a battle. Interesting story. Uh, and so through this pagan king, God, who had promised through the prophets to return his people to their homeland, fulfilled that promise through a pagan king, Cyrus II, because Cyrus allowed the Jews to return to their homeland. Some did return, and their story is written in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Most did not return. And Esther is a story that concerns primarily them. But as we'll see as the story goes on, it includes all the Jews on the face of the earth because they were pretty much all living in the Persian Empire at this time. Now, the line of succession, and we talked about this a little. I think I, I made some mention of, of um, Xerxes being Cyrus's grandson. That's not exactly right. So I wrote the line of succession up here for you, which I know some of you are just tuning out right now, like I did in 10th grade. It's like, oh, please, modern European history. I don't want to hear this. But I like history now. So, um, so Cyrus the Great had a son named Cambyses II. And Cyrus the Great was old. He was going into battle. He didn't know if he would return. So even before he left to go into battle with Greece, by the way, he put Cambyses on the throne. Uh, and, and Cyrus died in battle at the age of 70. Now, after Cambyses, it gets a little murky, which is why I put the sign on my new car for fog lights. So when it's foggy, it gets a, it gets a little foggy. Uh, after that, because there are differing reports of what happened, and I mean, for heaven's sake, this is like 2,500 years ago, so you know, it's it's a little murky what exactly happened. Cambyses was overthrown by this group, and then, but what ha what ultimately happens is through the murk, through the fog, Darius the first ends up on the throne of the Persian Empire. Darius the first was not the son or grandson of either Cyrus the Great or Cambyses. He, he possibly, possibly was the son-in-law of Cambyses. Um, but we don't even know that for sure. But he ends up on the um, throne of the Persian Empire. Uh, and then under Darius, the rebuilding of the temple was, was really pushed forward, that he continued Cyrus the Great's policy of not only allowing displaced peoples to go back to their homes, but helping them rebuild their homes and, and the temple and the wall and all that that you see in Ezra and Nehemiah uh, and funding that happened under Darius the first. He had a son and his son became Xerxes the first and here is where our story begins. So beginning with the first two verses of Esther 1, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. So we have here at the beginning the first word of the book or first words of the book of Esther are this is what happened. It's the same way that the books of Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel and other historical books of the Old Testament begin. 
this is the phrase, W-Y-H-Y. I'm not kidding you, man. That's Hebrew. This is Wahai. I'm not going to use Hebrew very much in this class. This is about it. You know, to me, this looks more like, a, like a, an AM radio signal call than it does, you know, W-K-R-P. And you read these, these Hebrew words and you're like, how am I, you know, P-R-B, how am I supposed to pronounce that? You know, so, but what this means in English is this is what happened. And what we know then is How huge, thank you very much, you did a very good job. Don't talk too long, it's only got one box. Oh yeah, it's red already, okay, don't talk too long. And we're done. Um, so he's trying to emphasize how huge the Persian Empire was by using this, this smaller uh, entity. And in fact, it was a very large empire, and he tells us it, it went from India to Kush. In our parlance, we would say from India or Pakistan, all the way over to parts of Egypt and the Sudan in Africa. So you can see all that green is the Persian Empire. Persia itself, where you see Persepolis, that was one of the capitals, is what's now Iran. Um, why do I make that face when I say Iran? But anyway, uh, and, and you can see um, just to the left of where Persia is, there's Susa. Susa was the wind, one, there are four capitals, there were four capitals of the Persian Empire. Uh, and Susa was the winter capital. So as this uh, story opens, the king is on his throne in Susa, governing his vast empire of the Persian uh, Empire. So, um, and oh, you got maps. Did you get maps? I gave you maps. Yeah, okay, good. That's probably the only time we'll use it. I know that's unusual for me, but it probably is. So Xerxes, let's talk about that name a little bit. Um, so I can pronounce more of these hard words over here. 
Uh, Xerxes is a Greek transliteration of his Persian name. A transliteration is when you take the letter in Persian and you, and you transpose it to the same letter in Greek. That's transliteration, okay? So here um, is his name in Persian. And as Angie said when she walked in, why are we talking about the Kardashians? <laughs> but I think, I think it should be pronounced WKRP in Cincinnati. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, I have no idea how you pronounce this, this word. But this was the poor guy's name in Persian. And, and Xerxes is a Greek transliteration of that. And the Hebrew transliteration of that is the word below it, Hashwarwash, which if you read Old Testament, Jewish Old Testament uh, scholars, they use Hashwarwash. I do not, because I just, for the reasons I just said, Hashwarwash uh, is not easy to say. In, in, um, in the Hebrew, it sounds something like King Headache in English, which I think is, uh, is pretty interesting. So let's talk about where this Esther story fits in then with, with Xerxes, uh, Ahasuerus, Kardashian the first. Um, it fits in in the third year of his reign, which was from 486 to 465 BC. So this story begins in 483 BC. Isn't that amazing that we can know that? I mean, that just, that blows my mind. In 483 BC, and the, and the events of the book take about 10 years. Uh, so from 483 BC to 473 BC. And as we begin the story, per, we know from history that Persia is in conflict with the Greeks. And the Greeks had this, you see, uh, you see over there where it's next to Thrace, and it's, it's silver, it's, it's uh, kind of a silvery color there. Yeah, That was Greece, that was Persia. They're in conflict with the Greece. Cyrus, or Cambyses, excuse me, um, or Dar I'm sorry, Darius, too many kings. Darius had lost to the Greeks. And so now Xerxes is trying to whip up support for a new campaign to invade Greece, which he's going to do. Uh, and he's going to fail uh, as well. But we don't know that yet. And, and that's part of the irony of this story that is somewhat lost on us. Because how many of you knew that before today? Okay, I didn't know it before last summer when I first read it. I didn't see these college kids. I knew that. Uh, I, I did not know. I mean, I probably knew it at some point. You, there you go. Well, but, and I probably knew it at some point when I was a history major, but it, you know, then I had kids and everything flew out the window. Um, so uh, the first readers, though, knew very well that this was the Great War Council of 483 BC, that he was trying to set them up to help him beat the Greeks, and they lost. He had a, a stunning, horrible, catastrophic defeat in this, uh, in this vengeful invasion of Greece. And um, it, it was very embarrassing, but the author chooses not to start there, not to say, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, he got beat up, but to start with Persia in all its glory and all its uh, splendor and, and, and um, uh, just over the top. Like my mother used to say, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. That was Xerxes' motto, that, that anything worth doing is worth overdoing. So why? Why would he do that? He is foreshadowing one of the primary themes of Esther, which is uh, a sudden turn of events. 
or a reversal of destiny. So here we have Xerxes in all his glory, and the first readers know, oh, but that's not going to turn out good for him. Things are going to get bad for Xerxes fast. And it's foreshadowing the turn of events for the Jews, how God will reverse their fortunes, only in that case, it's for the better, not for the worse. Um, I also think that we, we see here that nothing and no one can ever thwart the plan and the promise of God, that God is in control, not Xerxes. So we have the, the rest of this one through eight. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media. The princes and nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of whatever that is, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. Drunkenness could be another interpretation there. By the king's command, each guest was, guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. So here we have this picture of opulence. And, and we know from, uh, from history that this was the great war council of 483 BC. And we know that there was the six-month recruiting party where he's trying to get these guys, come on, are you with me? You know, win one for the Gipper. Let's go kick the Greases, Grecians, you know, rear ends and, and trying to get the support, which would have been big business in an empire that large to, to, to maintain and keep the loyalty of those under you was time-consuming. Well, six months worth of time-consuming recruiting. Um, and so, they, and you thought your parties in college were, Amazing. They had this, this six-month recruiting party followed by a seven-day-long bash for everyone, uh, for, from least to greatest. Uh, and he's, he's trying to curry favor with those uh, nobles and, and people that are, are the satraps and the leaders of the provinces so that they'll follow him into what ends up being an ill-advised war. So the picture being painted here of the Persian Empire is, is just really vivid. In fact, this description rivals the descriptions of the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, and nothing else does. There's nowhere else in Scripture where you have this kind of detailed description of a palace other than the temple and the tabernacle. They had grand furnishings and expensive decor, and there was gluttonous revelry. I mean, the opulence is just over the top. And, and the intention of Xerxes is to display the, the glory of the empire, the power and the glory of the empire. In fact, it's the, the stated intention that, uh, where does it say? The, the words that are using, that he uses 
is um, the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. I think he's saying this tongue-in-cheek, to be honest with you, because he knows that the God in, God in heaven laughs at this guy. The splendor and the glory of the majesty. Yeah, right. Uh, and so this is the picture he's painting for a purpose that we would understand um, that Xerxes has no splendor and no glory, particularly compared to the one who is the true king of kings. Uh, and so I think we're supposed to see the irony here. The irony, as I said, of the first readers who knew that, yeah, splendor, glory, majesty, he's about to get his rear end kicked when he tries to invade Greece. Not so splendiferous, is it? And so that's the, the first picture we have of the splendor and the glory of the Persian Empire. And then things turn to his queen, his splendiferous queen, Vashti. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, that could loosely be translated drunk as a skunk, because that's what he was. He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Memumen, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abgatha, Ab Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass. I practiced those last night. To bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Now there's a historical issue here because Herodotus, who was an ancient Greek historian, says that the name of Xerxes' wife was Amestris, not Vashti. So how do we solve this then? Um, does that mean that this isn't a real story because he got the name wrong? Well, first of all, uh, there, there are a number of solutions, at least four, that I thought of. Um, Herodotus could be wrong, and the biblical story could be right about her name. Now, scholars and historians never allow for this possible solution, even though in other places Herodotus has been proven to be wrong. doesn't matter. The Bible can't be right. So, but it could be that, that Herodotus got the name wrong. Uh, perhaps Xerxes had more than one wife. In fact, he probably did have more than one wife. He had a whole stable full of wives, and so these could be two different wives. And the reason Herodotus only mentions Amestris is that we also know from history that she was the mother of Artaxerxes, who succeeded his father on the throne. And so he's only interested in those queens that are part of the line of succession. And that is true of most uh, ancient historians. A third solution would be that uh, Vashti could be a Hebrew transliteration of Amestris. In other words, that could be her name in Hebrew rather than in Persian, like her Hashwarash is for Kardashian. Um, and finally, it's entirely possible that the author of uh, Esther knew that the woman's name was Amestris, but chose the name Vashti for its meaning as a literal literary device. It means beautiful woman. And what's he setting her up for? It could be pretty woman, maybe in our parlance. But, uh, and so it could be a literary device that the author is using. 
Uh, any way you slice it, there is nothing in this story or in Vashti's name that disqualifies this story from being historically accurate. So here's the situation. These guys are in high spirits. Isn't that a nice way to put it? They've been drinking for seven days. And all of a sudden, good old Xerxes get an, gets an idea. I know, I'll just parade my wife out here in front of all these drunks so they can see how pretty she is. Great idea, Xerxes. And so he sends seven eunuchs to pick her up. Now, can I just express my sympathy for these men? You know what a eunuch is, don't you? And you think that like drug testing is a, is a high requirement to get a job? Excuse me. I mean, these poor guys, because so they could live with the women, they were, I mean, emasculated. That's awful. That's just awful. So anyway, these guys, seven guys, why seven? That's probably how many carried her on her litter, on her little big throne chair, so that they could carry her back um, to be oogled at. Uh, and, and he says to, to bring her in wearing her royal crown. Now that's all he says that she should wear, which caused some ancient rabbis to postulate that what he wanted was her to come wearing her royal crown and nothing else uh, in front of these men. And that may be overreaching the text a little bit. But as, as Dr. Ian DeGood puts it, uh, they were not far, those, those rabbis that believed that were not far off the mark in discerning the offensiveness of Xerxes' intentions to parade his wife around. He is commanding his wife to appear all dolled up and looking gorgeous as an object of pleasure, of lust for a bunch of drunken men. What an awful thing to do. I'm sure he thought it would be a great idea and it would commandeer the respect of these men that he wanted to follow him. He didn't give any thought to respecting his wife, however. And for some strange reason, Vashti just doesn't like this idea. And so she just says no. And I say, you go, girl. Absolutely, say no. Her response, however, is not what Xerxes was expecting. And it, was, it must have been a tremendous embarrassment for him. And he burns with anger. Because how was he to commandeer the loyalty of these men if he couldn't even get his wife to do what he wanted her to do? So here's the backdrop. Here's, again, the picture that is being painted of, of Xerxes and of his empire. Um, that, that this king is an impetuous man with what my nephew calls angerment issues. Uh, he, he just, he has a temper on him, and the Persian court is not a safe place, and particularly not a safe place for women. Uh, in fact, there's a story a little bit later that when he was invading Greece, he had a bunch of men working on a bridge, and he had every single one of them beheaded because weather had delayed the building of the bridge. That's the kind of guy we're talking about. And our author wants to make sure that we understand that this man is not a good guy. And he's not a safe guy. Uh, and Vashti, wow, refuses him. She's not afraid. And he also wants to kind of set up for us, by the way, this is the man that Esther is going to go before without invitation. Um, I was going to talk about the exemplary approach to... Um, to the, uh, interpreting this story, but we're going to skip over that in the interest of time. Let's just talk about the purpose of this portion of the story. 
Um, the purpose is, is, as I just said, to paint a picture of this king who holds tremendous power, who holds absolute power within the Persian Empire, and yet he wields it for his own glory and purposes with no regard for the consequences of others. And the author is showing us what Esther and Mordecai are going to be up against when they face the same king. But more importantly, this portion of the story is written to show us that although God may make use of human action, his providence is never, his providence and his sovereignty both actually, are never dependent upon those actions. People can do good things, bad things, wonderful things, horrible things, and God will use all of it for his glory to bring about his, um, his redemptive purposes for his people. In fact, we can already see God's hand of providence for the redemption of his people at work in this story through the demands of a pagan king and the refusal of a pagan queen. Isn't God good? So then King Xerxes is faced with figuring out what do you do with a problem like Avashti? And uh, he's going to figure that out in his own inimitable way. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of the law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Menuchen, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. I think they were officially called the seven who can see the face of the king or something. These were the seven guys that could come before the king without invitation or without announcement um, at any time. And so he consults these wise men. Wise men? Yeah, wise men. Uh, and they understood the law. They were experts in the law. Uh, and so they, uh, rather than handle this personal problem with his wife by himself, Xerxes decides to make a legal incident out of it, bring in all his advisors and write a new law. When it says understood the times, um, it means that um, they were good at divination or at sorcery to figure out the best way to take. Right. Uh, and God is sovereign. So that's what it's talking about, figure out the right course of action. And so, so the author, again, is setting the stage to tell us who is really in control of this situation. And so they're going to pass a new law. According to the law, what must be done about Queen Vashti, he asked. Now, he isn't saying, uh, what law do we have on the books? There probably wasn't a law on the books for a queen that disobeyed the king. And so what he's essentially saying is, what do you guys think we should do about this? What law should we write to fix this problem? Uh, she has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Nemuchin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and all the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. So now it's this huge event that's going on. Uh, not just she, she uh, refused, but it's, he's, she hasn't just sinned against Xerxes, she's sinned against everyone. And so uh, for the queen's conduct will become known 
to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of the disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again Notice Vashti. Now she's not Queen Vashti anymore. She's just plain old Vashti. Is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she, i.e. more obedient uh, than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Right, yeah, that's going to work out <laughs> really well with the women. Um, by the way, it, it mentions that it's an irrevocable law. This is the first time we hear that the laws of Persia were irrevocable. In other words, they couldn't be taken back. And that's a, um, that's a subject that we'll hear again as this goes on. But what I want you to notice is how Memucan is able to manipulate King Xerxes, how he's able to use uh, King Xerxes for his own purposes. He's flattering King Xerxes, if it pleases the king. Uh, and, and he's trying to convince him. In fact, he's praying not only on Xerxes' fears, but probably on his own when he makes this not just a crime against Xerxes, but against the entire empire. They'll all revolt. Every single one of them is going to revolt if you don't do something about this right now. Uh, and, and as Dr. Jobes says, what began as an issue between two people suddenly is escalated into a crisis of empire-wide proportions. Uh, and so... Uh, this, this Memucan is able to manipulate King Xerxes. And then it ends, the, the chapter ends with this irony. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. That is highly ironic because this happened almost privately, and, and the Persian Empire is huge. And out of fear that people might learn of the queen's disrespect, the king passes a law and sends it to every person in his kingdom so that they will definitely find out about the queen's disrespect. This is how Karen Jobes puts it. And I'm sorry, I didn't write this one down. I wrote the other ones down. Ironically, by accepting Memucan's advice, the king ends up publicizing his embarrassing plight by ordering throughout the empire what he himself could not accomplish in his own palace, that every man should rule over his own household. Afraid that all women of the empire will hear about Vashti, he ends up assuring what he fears by sending a dispatch to every province in his empire. So there's great irony, and in fact, I believe that's intentional by the author, and in fact, I believe, uh, as a lot of scholars do, that we're intended to read this, this book of Esther almost like a dark comedy, that there's humor, almost like some of those Shakespearean comedies where you know the guy's a fool, but he doesn't know he's a fool. Uh, and so we have this sort of dark comedy. Um, and, and it may seem odd that we're... we're supposed to see humor in a story where the villain is bent on genocide. Um, but uh, 
that will turn, those tables will turn. And, and we, I think we are intended to see the humor and the folly in the pride and the hubris of these people in Esther. In fact, Dr. DeGood said, says that in terms of cinematic parallels, these guys are less the Magnificent Seven and more a Hasharash and a Seven Dwarfs. Um, and it's true that as we back off from event, an event that was not funny at all, have you had this happen? I was riding my bike once in the sixth grade where my mother told me not to, wearing brand new white pants, and the, and the chain fell off the bike, so I decided to fix it in brand new white pants. And because I didn't want her to know that where I was riding my bike because I wasn't supposed to go there and I would get in trouble. And so I went home and I thought, how do you get black tar stains out of white pants? Bleach. Bleach is how you get. I didn't know that you were supposed to dilute the bleach. I was in the sixth grade. How would I know that you were supposed to dilute the They dissolve. The pants like dissolve. So then what do you say to your mother when she goes, what, happens to, what happened to those cute white pants that I bought you? It wasn't funny at the time. It was not funny at all. Now it's absolutely hilarious. Uh, and so that's true of this story as well. Well, I just want to, in conclusion, give you sort of two overarching points of this first chapter of Esther. Because we see in the, the very first chapter that God is already at work in this story. He has not been mentioned in any way, but he's already at work to fulfill his redemptive pur purpose for his people. When we think of redemptive history, we think of the big events, you know, parting of the Red Sea, you know, plagues and fire from heaven and, and all these huge miraculous events. But Dr. Karen Jobes points out that between those miraculous events in the history of the world are hundreds of and thousands of years of history that are just everyday, ordinary events that are just as supernaturally superintended as anything else. And, and she also points out that we now live in one of those times. Between the ascension of our Lord and the return of our Lord, we have this 2,000 years plus of history. Um, and, and God is at work within that. In fact, because, oh, here I wrote this one now. Because she says it so much better than I, here's what she says. Like Xerxes long ago, modern kings, presidents, and rulers make decisions from pure, purely political motives. Like Vashti, people today unwittingly make decisions that have long-reaching consequences far beyond what they could have foreseen. These events may be completely secular and perhaps made by people who give Christ no thought. Nonetheless, through them, God is moving all of history forward to accomplish all that must happen before the return of his son, Jesus Christ, the true King of Kings. And we can take comfort in that in our own lives. The second overarching thing, I believe, in this chapter is, uh, is that God is in control. And again, from Dr. Job's, name whichever empire, nation, or government you wish as the mightiest, the greatest, the most powerful, the king of the universe sits on high above his, on his throne laughing at the impotence of even the greatest of nations. And then I had you read Psalm 2, which she inserts there. Through invisible and inscrutable means, God continues to move all of history to fulfill his covenant in Jesus Christ. He alone truly is the King of Kings. The one who opposes Christ the King opposes God. 
And because of that, because the one who opposes Christ opposes God, the story of Esther stands as a warning to any who would try to thwart God's purposes uh, in the world, that would thumb their nose at God and, and, and oppose him because they will be destroyed. But also, at the same time, we as believers in Jesus Christ can take great hope and comfort as God's people in this same truth. For as Dr. Jobes puts it, to be in Christ is to be on the winning side of history, to be victorious even in the face of life's greatest threats. The Esther story tells us that not, not only will God never abandon his people, it also tells us that God will accomplish his redemptive purposes no matter what. Which makes me think and believe and say, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you so much for your hand of providence. Whether or not we see it at work, it is at work. Thank you, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When did I lose my mic again? Did I lose